0: Welcome, adventurer, to the Level Up Board Game Podcast, a show that uses your experiences and opinions to discuss board games and the gaming community. Join the heroes as they conquer perils such as meeples, cards, and miniatures, all in an effort to level up. You're listening to the Level Up Board Game Podcast. Welcome, adventurers, to episode 47 of the Level Up Board Game Podcast. My name is Patrick. Hey, King Scott here. And today we're paying extra attention to gaming for two. Nothing says Valentine's Day like Gunfighter and Blitzkrieg. Wait a minute, how did Unfathomable get on... Scott... (laughs) <laughs> we'll talk about it. We'll talk about it. Trust me, there's an angle to it. Fair enough. Our feature review today is Elf Creek Games' Merchants of the Dark Road. We tapped into the community to get your thoughts on the joys of two-player gaming. Josh is going to join us for some Lost Loot. We've got a special adventure on the horizon as well. In fact, a two-player game called Five Paths. we got a big one today, Scott. Yeah, it is. And one thing just kind of bothered me. I looked at this and seeing we're on
1: episode 47... Did you ever stop and think 47 is just like an ugly number? It's not anything major. It's not a 45 or a 50. It's just kind of like thrown in there. It's like after New Year's Day, what really goes on then? It's
0: just like January. Yeah, it's a bland It's a bland number. Well, hey, we're getting real close to 50. And I tell you what, I, when we started, I was like, well, if we get to 10 and I'm still interested, that'd be pretty impressive. And here we I are know. on the cusp of 50. I've said this number of
1: times, but hey. It still boggles my mind that we're doing this, and we're just having such a great time doing this.
0: Oh, yeah. Well, Scott, this episode comes on the heels of a game day this past weekend. We had a bunch of things to the table. I tell you what, G.I. Joe deck-building game, that game's hard.
1: We got yes, our it is. it is. It's deceptively hard. It's fun. It's great getting back all those old characters you know, but it is ripe for expansions, and I can't wait for them to get more out yeah,
0: it feels like they can they can expand on it, but as is, you know, there's what two missions in that box. I know each each of the uh, the we'll call it a campaign style mission has like nine different objectives to go through, plus all those little like side guys popping up and getting in the way. But there's two main things you can do, like you can opt to do this mission or that mission, right?
1: Yes, you have two missions, but each mission is split up into, three different acts. Each one of those acts have six different parts to go in there where you only chose two. So you've got a lot of play with those two missions. It's a lot of fun. Whenever you're playing with someone who hasn't played it, like with you and Mike, Mm -hmm. you're flipping it over and you're getting excited. Like, oh, wait, look, there's rock and roll. Oh, wait, (laughs) there's deep six. And you were so excited to see what the next
0: character was going to be that flipped over. And it was just a lot of fun watching that. Is Deep Six that scuba diver that I had? Yes, yes. You know, I had. The, you know, I I was thinking about the game, which is usually a good sign when I'm thinking about a game after we're finished playing it. I had Deep Six and I had that scuba vehicle, the shark, the shark. Okay, and I was like, if I can get the shark into play and then Deep Six, then I'll be able to like plus six on my die rolls. And the one what is it, blood something, mud blood or who is that guy that oh, was Oh Major uh, Blood. Major Blood. When we took him down, the the special like stipulation was we each had to lose one of our main G.I. Joe's, one of our named characters. That's when I lost Deep Six. That's when Mike lost uh, one of his guys. And that I think is what derailed our entire game. We <laughs> we lost. <laughs> yeah, it definitely did. And this, I'm not a big RPG
1: player or anything, but they're coming out with a G.I. Joe role-playing game. And its oh, I didn't that's that. kind
0: of tickling my uh, acquisition disorder there a little bit. By the time this episode goes live, I should have nemesis lockdown. I went to dinner Woo-hoo. with my wife last night, and I got the little buzz on the phone. I looked at it and said, hey, this is coming from Florida. It should be there by Thursday. <gasps> Ooh, I got all giddy and stuff. <laughs> well, I, yeah, well I texted Jimmy instantly. And you know, if it's here Thursday, I got the lobsters coming on the weekend. Maybe we'll try and give it a whirl. Oh, that could be a good one. Adventures! if you missed our side quest last week, we had Emil Larson on the show. We talked about Rogue Angels. It's live on Kickstarter. Now, get back there and give that episode a listen. He's got a very, very solid story-driven campaign game. Looking forward to that one. I backed already, Scott. Yeah, talking
1: about the whole thing with G.I. Joe and with the universe it's in, he's really nailed it with this one. I mean, this is a universe that you could really get in there, get your hooks
0: into, and really enjoy everything that he's putting into that. Editor's note, Rogue Angels, Legacy of the Burning Suns, that Kickstarter has been canceled. Emil Larson, the game's creator and Kickstarter campaign runner, he's got some things that he wants to revise, and he's going to relaunch this soon. We're going to leave the episode available, but currently it is not live on Kickstarter. Want to do some recent plays? Let's do some recent plays. It's my turn to go first, you know. You do it.
1: Patrick, seriously. Stop with the music. We're going oh. to get sued one of these days with using uh, this IP from <laughs> no, all these
0: No, 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 no. We're following the rules. You're oh, allowed to are? use like a under certain number of sec And it adds flavor. Come on. Okay, okay, okay. Got it. Add all the flavor notes you want to this. Okay, Scott, I'm going to talk about Gunfighter. This is a 2018 game by Derek Huang published by Everything Epic Games. And here we have a theme that is just perfect for two, a classic showdown in the Old West. Yeah, you know, you just sit there,
1: you grit your teeth, you look at the shifty-eyed person. Well, that's not really Valentiney there, is it? <laughs> no.
0: Gunfighter is okay. a card game. This is a card game where each player is going to begin the game with a hand of cards. And there's a shared deck between the two of you to draw from. Now, before we get into those cards, let's quickly go over your, your player card. It's basically going to be where you have like the outline of your stats, namely, what is your aim and your ammo? They can go from, I think it's zero to six, zero to six. You want them to be higher. You want a lot, uh, a lot of aim, like that's your focus so that you're able to hit your target and ammo, of course, you need in order to use your shoot cards. Speaking of which, let's get on to those cards. Cards in your hand are going to do a number of things. The main ones, that the main actions that are going to win you the game or, or lose directly are shooting your opponent or dodging. A shoot action that is not appropriately dodged will hit your target, dealing a damage. And the first to deal X number of damage, uh, wounds, will win the game. So you can set a game up to, okay, first person to take two damage, you're dead. Cards are selected simultaneously and put face down and then flipped up for resolution. We saw this sort of thing What with... um. What was our side quest? Senjutsu. Very similar yes. to that, only without the miniatures, without the board. It's strictly the cards that we're working with here. What stuck out for me with this game wasn't so much the shooting and the dodging. That's kind of self-explanatory. You know, you'd know, you be playing rock, paper, scissors. if That's all it was. But there's a lot more here. The first card that I ever played in the game of Gunfighter was a stare-down card. And wouldn't you know it? My opponent played the same thing. It was perfect. Uh, this was at Pax, right? I'm playing with the guy at the booth, and he's, you know, we each flip our, our card, and we both have this stare down. And he's like, "Whoa!" And he does the stand with his with his. He's got his fingers next to his holsters, and he starts wiggling his uh, fingers on side. I was like, "Oh, this is good." So I did the same thing. Nikki next at me like, "Okay, these guys are ridiculous." <laughs> we were both standing there, like we're getting ready to draw pistols. There are direct benefits to playing taunt cards and instill fear cards because they keep your aim high. Some of the special cards are going to let you do a few things all at once, all with the goal of getting your aim high enough so that you can hit your target when you do play a shoot card. So it does have some of that princess bride, like I know that you know that at like you're trying to guess when they're going to use their shoot card, and that's when you want to use your dodge. But if now is the perfect time for them to use their shoot card, they know that you know that, so <laughs> <laughs> you can go right down that rabbit hole, right? Some of the key cards you might need to have access to in hand will technically never go away. Like your base shoot card, for example, it actually says return it to your hand after playing. Other cards, they don't. Some cards, they're going to say, when you play this, you get to draw a new card. All in all, we're talking a strategic thematic card game and it plays in like 15 to 20 minutes they have a print and play file so adventures you can give this a try just printing it up at home or you can buy it directly with the tokens and whatnot for i want to say it's like 20 or 25 bucks not bad not bad now one thing i need to ask is it seems
1: mm? like it does a lot of the same that a lot of other games do what makes
0: this one stand out? Well, it certainly has that tension. This style of game of like the simultaneous reveal and seeing who's got the higher initiative, like I said, like we saw in Senjutsu, one of the biggest draws to that game for me i think for a lot of people it's the miniatures it's the board it's the spatial relations and that's that's sort of the extras that they jammed into that but the core mechanic of the game is oh how important is it going to be for me to get the higher initiative right now what are they going to do that aha moment when they flip up their card and it's exactly what you guessed it was going to be oh it'll have you saying i'm your huckleberry yeah <laughs> It's just a lot of fun, and it it does capture that dueling experience. It's just you and the other player and some cards. Go. I was captivated. Excellent two-player game, Gunfighter.
1: Well, I'm going to take over now. Now, mine was another two-player game here that I played, and we're going to go back to the age of 80s cartoons once again. Thanks to Renegade Games, I got a game in of Transformers, the deck-building game. Now this comes out at the same time as GI Joe the deck building game, and wait for it, Power Rangers the deck building
0: game, which I have not tried yet. You would think that. So let me let me stop you for a minute. Okay. You you're too old for Power Rangers. I'm too old for Power. Like that was out by the like by the time that was cool, I was done with cartoons. Are you a Power Ranger fan? I
1: am a Power Ranger fan for the last five minutes of the show, and that is <laughs> only because. <laughs> and, and now let me, I digress here, just adventurous. Hang on here with me for a moment. I'd love watching this stuff transform. That's what I loved about transformers and everything like that. Watching how they take one thing, transform it into another thing and build like a giant robot. Just the whole engineering part of that just amazes me how someone could sit there and look at an elephant and think, how can we make this into a standing robot? I mean, that takes a different kind of mindset to look at it and try and figure
0: that out. Isn't it all to sell toys? Wasn't it like all the 80s cartoons? They had the toy line first, and they were like, okay, we need to make a show so that we can sell these. Isn't that- I don't need they'd... this kind of negativity in my life, Patrick. Okay? You're right. Seriously. Valentine's Day. Let's keep the love flowing. <laughs> Tell me about Trans, uh, Transformers, the deck building game. Well, as I said, there's those three
1: deck building games. They're all coming out from Renegade Studios. Now, this one here was designed by Dan Blanchett and Matt Hira. So you would think, "Ah, you play the G.I. Joe one, play the Transformers one. We're going to get the same flavor. Absolutely not. You are not going to get the same flavor. This game is a bit of a treasure hunt. What you'll do is you will have, I believe it's 15 cards laid out in front of you face down, Mm -hmm. so you have no idea what they are. So you get to choose what Autobot you are. So you could be Optimus Prime, you could be Bumblebee, you could be Wheeljack, whatever you want to be. What you want to do is you go around to different cards and you put your marker down on it. You flip Mm -hmm. it over. You may just all of a sudden get like this great upgrade for you. You might find one of your Autobot allies. What you'll do is you'll take your five cards you have in your hand, look at the amount of money, if you will, Mm -hmm. to buy something and... You'll buy what's there. Well, in the hidden part of it, you could jump on a place and boom, there's Starscream. Well, you got to fight Starscream. So now then, it's you and you alone or your uh, partner, if you have a partner trying Mm -hmm. to fight against Starscream, that's where it gets interesting because you aren't overwhelmed with a ton of attack value or anything like that at all. You have to build it up as you go with transformers you can be either a robot or a car so if you're a car you might get extra money to buy something but you can't fight anything so you are susceptible to attacks so it's very tricky there what you want to do you want to go out searching for things as a car or as your autobot form it really does a great job the artwork is fantastic It's a lot of fun seeing these things and playing this game because you don't know what's going to pop up. You don't know what's going to be out there. Just the same way whenever we were playing G.I. Joe, you flip it over. Oh, my God, I remember that character. I forgot all about him. Oh, there's Cliff Jumper. This is amazing. The game is a lot of fun. It's a lot of uh, memorabilia going back to the 80s whenever you're a kid watching these things. Memorabilia? You mean nostalgia? Nostalgia, yeah, I mean, hey, I I, I was on a roll here. The nostalgia of seeing all those things, reliving all those fun memories you had from whenever you were a kid, Ah. great time to play it. I would definitely say
0: check out Transformers. Now, our three-player game of G.I. Joe, I want to say that took us about an hour. And had we won, we might have gone an extra 10 minutes. So so hour to hour and 15, how long does a game of Transformers take? You're looking probably about the same amount of time
1: what will happen is you will lose the game if you get five damage. Now mm-hmm. it's not five damage total for everyone that's playing. It's one person gets five damage. Everyone loses. Everyone's done. Everyone is done. So it got to the point that Tom and I were playing. We both had, I think, four damage and it got down to the last one. And we flipped over a beast of a Decepticon and we're like, Yep. Nope. We're done. Uh, We're not even going to play through the last thing here. There's no way we're going to (laughs) make it through this. You're 0 for 2 on these deck building games with us. Oh, man. It was rough. That's what I liked about it. It was challenging. It was not just a simple little thing where you can get younger people. This was definitely made with the idea of people who grew up with Transformers go back and relive those kind of memories there with it. So it was truly a lot of fun and this is another one i mean it's just primed okay sorry pun intended
0: um prime for <laughs> um, more expansions Scott, we played the G.I. Joe deck building game, and I couldn't help but feel like it's tremendously replayable. With the order of what's coming up in that market, I feel like, you know what, I can dive into this again. There's what a dozen different characters with a starting deck that I can play. Whether I'm playing it solo or two-handed or with a buddy, I feel like I could keep coming back to it. Does this have that kind of replayability? Oh, definitely. I mean, it's one that you don't want to overplay. I
1: mean, it could fall into that thing where you play it too much and then... It goes away, and you kind of get tired all the of the cards, all the surprises. Sure, exactly. But it's one of those ones that, like, every two weeks, pull it out, and you're still gonna have that fun game experience. I don't really care if I win or lose at a game, as mm-hmm. long as I'm having fun while I'm doing it.
0: That's the big point that I always look for. And it sounds like you had fun with Transformers: The Deck Building Game. I had a blast. <laughs> Now, what
1: was the next game you played since you did such a wonderful job with your Valentine-themed
0: gunfighter? <laughs> oh, we're gonna keep it Valentine's themed. This is one that I got to play two-player with a certain special someone in my life in the hotel at Pack. <laughs> we were we were alone in the hotel. It was yeah, dark. We in were there, Philadelphia, yes, um, the and- city of brotherly
1: love. <laughs> Consulting over the destruction of the world as we know it.
0: Yeah, yeah. Our game of, uh, well, we'll say our hotel game, our pre-con and post-con game at PAX was an older one. a 20, Well, older. A 2018 game by Paolo Mori called Blitzkrieg, World War II in 20 Minutes. Now, this lives up to that name, doesn't it? Oh, it most certainly does. So this was put out by PSC Games. How does one play Blitzkrieg? First off, you've got a board depicting five theaters of World War II, each with several slots to which players can assign units. And the units are basically... Chits that are in your bag. Above each of these battle areas, there's a little tracker to show who's in the lead in that fight. It starts in the middle on a zero, and if the axis go up, you're going to move the little cube that's on that chart to the left, towards the axis. If the allies put down, say, a unit worth four, it's going to move four ticks to the right, maybe pull that theater in the allies' favor. The pieces that players can play in any given fight, as I said, they're tokens that are pulled from your bag. So at the start of the game, each player gets three tokens from their bag. Axis and allies, they both start with these, with identical pieces. There's There's no asymmetry to start. On your turn, you play one token, and then you get to pull a new one. That's basically it. Now, when you play one, say a a tank with a value two, you place it in the Pacific Theater. Like I said, you move that battle marker two spaces in your direction. Now, each of these theaters that we're placing our tokens, they typically have a few rows to them, and you have to play in the highest row if possible. When the row's full, whoever has a higher value in that row will get the points that are listed just to the right. And this is important because the first to reach 25 wins the game. Now many of the spaces are going to be restricted. You remember like some of the brown and some of the blue spaces. Yes. They were for the uh what for the the ground units mm-hmm. and for the C units. So if I've got three tokens in front of me and they all they're all C units, I'm not going to be able to place on one of the brown spaces. I got to go blue. Some spaces will allow for both. Several spaces have a bonus for being the one to place there, such as um, the industrial complex Mm -hmm. spot. You remember you place there, you get to – you have your maximum hand size. You you get four tokens behind your screen instead of three. We should have pointed that. Uh, You got a screen so that your opponent can't see what you might be playing next. There was a lot of gameplay in those upgrade spots we had a game where scott you bombed the hell out of you hit i had 3 tokens in my hand if you place on the bombing space you just put your hand over their screen and get rid of one token because now their max hand size is 2 and then you did it again Mm-hmm. Holy crap, are you limited when you just play the oh, token yeah. you have and draw one new token? I couldn't believe. It. So then the next game is, well, I'm going for the industrial complexes. I want to be able to uh, to get my hand size big and get the selections up and in turn protect myself from bombing. So within three plays, we we're already like going deeper into the game. And then they had those upgrade spaces. Right, yes. If you play a tile to one of those spots, you got a special chip to mix into your bag. And this is where we're going to get some asymmetry. That's usually something very powerful or something that's unique when played. Like I know tanks – what the ground units, they went like from one, they were all one and twos, I think? I think so, yes. But one of the upgrades was a tank with a value four. One of the upgrades is a scientist. One of them is a nuclear bomb. Like all these little ways that you can sort of uh, introduce asymmetry to your play and do something special that makes you feel different, makes you, would you feel have powerful.
1: A general or an admiral that would upgrade your uh, water or land units, all that kind of stuff.
0: You know what? This was an intuitive game. The rules are easy. There's reminders on the screen for each of us so that if you're forgetting wait what, is the, what does the bombing mean, mm-hmm. it's right there on your screen. And legit, it played in like 20 minutes.
1: After our last get together at Ruckus Cafe, if you get a chance to go out, go out and have coffee with someone to, to go out and just have a good time for a little while. This scratches that itch for the perfect game to take out. Like the box says, you can play it in 20 minutes. You have Mm -hmm. a full game experience while you're doing it. And it's a great thing to do. Just play that while you're uh, having your coffee, having a drink, having a few laughs. And also Mm -hmm. on a larger sense, I think it's a great thing to have people come over and look at and like, what's this? What are you doing? And it's a
0: great way to draw people into the gaming hobby, too. So this is a game that we would play in the morning as we were like having breakfast, waiting to go to the convention. Mm It was Sunday. I remember it was Sunday. I went, uh, I went walking around. I was like, you know what? I'm going to go through the dealer. That uh, What are they? The exhibition area yes. one more time. See what everybody has. See if there's a game I want to demo that I haven't yet. I spent so much time just in that new games area, learning from people that knew how to play them and playing out full games that uh, loved it. Okay. But I'm walking around that exhibition area and I see this little pedestal. It's a uh, PSC games and they had a game set up that looked an awful lot like Blitzkrieg, a game called Caesar, sees Rome in 20 minutes. And I was like, okay, tell me about this. (laughs) And I'll save my thoughts on it for another episode. But I bought it that day. I made the terrible mistake of also buying the defense of Procyon 3. It's not going to be a terrible game i'm excited to play it but the terrible mistake was i had one bag with about 10 pounds worth of board games in it and by the end of the day the little plastic handles on the bag were trying real hard my poor my poor fingers were like please make us not hold this bag anymore (laughs) but that's blitzkrieg from palo moria psc games 2018 game Uh, i think both of us gave that one a big thumbs up yeah it was a surprise
1: because a lot of times you see those things where world war ii in 20 minutes you know. Okay, this is going to be kind of light. going to be dumb. But, no, hey, I'm telling you what, it was very
0: impressive. You know what's going to be really impressive, Scott? What is that? You said you're going to tie in Unfathomable to our It's the Valentine's episode. Let's try to do two-player games. Let's. I'm interested to see how you're going to make this work. Sit back and be amazed,
1: Patrick. <laughs> so, <laughs> last week I got a chance to finally get out and get a game of Unfathomable in. This is designed by Tony Fanchi and based upon what I consider probably one of the most perfect games ever from Corey Kineska, the old Battlestar Galactica game. That one was based on Battlestar Galactica. I think they lost the license. Really? For that. Yeah, I'm surprised. That's news to me. <laughs> and this was a great game with hidden traders in it. But if you watch the show, you really got sucked into it. So what they've done is they have rethemed it all over to Cthulhu mythos. Mm -hmm. So what's happening now is that you are on a boat on your way traveling to Boston. Well, you have to get to Boston, but on your way there, you get attacked by Father Dagon and Mother Hydra. All right. You're running around the boat, you're trying to fight off these deep ones that are coming on board, trying to keep the ship going. you're trying to speed the ship up. you're trying to make sure that you're healthy enough. you want to make sure that no one gets killed. You want to make sure you have enough fuel. But you have two uh-huh, uh-huh. a couple of hybrids which are just playing just well enough to keep you off their scent but bad enough to make you lose the game. These are your Cylons, your traitors. Exactly, yes. Okay. So as you go along, you have what they call a mythos phase, or like a crisis phase. You flip over a card, and it will say, there's a fire in the boiler room. Well, you need to take care of it. In order to do that, there are five different types of skill cards that everyone gets, and each person is more adept to a certain kind of skill. So you'll get five cards. Like I was a stowaway, and I think mine were lore, mind, and stealth, I think it was, were the three things that I was good at. Okay. You flip over the crisis card. It will give you a number up in the corner, like a 12. So you Mm -hmm. need to get a 12 in order to divert the crisis. Well, in order to do that, you need to have a certain number. You need to get a 12. And you can only use a certain number of colors. So it might be blue and orange. Mm -hmm. So what will happen is it goes around. Each person puts in as many cards as they want to that are going to help you pass that. You also have a chaos deck, which you take two cards from that, which are two cards from each five of the different roles that you can play. All right. You flip them over. There's an orange. There's a blue. There's a blue. There's an orange. There's a green. Hmm. Now then was that from one of the players or was that from the chaos deck? Do we have someone in here that is trying to make us lose this now?
0: So, so they use know. the random draws from those decks to help mask the traitor. Exactly. Uh, if we find that every time we take Scott along with us there's a, you know, there's a bad thing, then we can easily deduce it. But by having you take random cards off the top of decks, you don't know. You have an alibi. No, I didn't do that. It must have come from a deck.
1: That is exactly right. And if you get to the point that you think, oh, wait, Logan is a traitor. Yeah. Let's throw Logan in the brig. Well, you can throw a person in the brig and then they're stuck in there. They have to try and break out. But then you could throw in a completely innocent person and not even know it. Just because Logan looks a little (laughs) shifty eyed. You don't know. He does. (laughs) This goes on and you have to make it all the way to Boston. There are two tracks up on the top that will have, now this here, I really like better than what they did with Battlestar Galactica. You have two tracks on the top that will show where there's a spell that's being this big spell that's being built up to destroy everything out in the water, all the deep ones, but also anyone that's out on the outside deck, if they aren't inside the ship. So you could blow yourself up, go to sickbay. So you're stuck in sickbay. Or also, there is a track for travel, and once you move four steps down that track, you then draw a transit card, and that will show you how much closer you are to getting to Boston. Mm There will be a number up in the top corner there, usually a two, three, maybe a four. Once you get to six total, some on those cards, well, then you got to go back to the deck of cards and you all get another one. It will tell you whether or not you're a human or hybrid. So you could have been going the whole first part of the game saying that you're human. All of a sudden you figure out, oh, wait, I'm a sleeper and I am actually trying to sink this ship. It's a great time. It's a lot of laughs, a lot of panicking whenever you're trying to figure out what you want to do. The crisis cards are also fun because sometimes they'll flip them over and you have a, if you pass the test, if you fail the test, what Mm. are you going to do? So you ask everybody, what are you going to do? There might be ones that it's the captain's choice. Only the captain can decide on what's going to happen. So if the captain is a hybrid, well, you know they're going to try and come up with some way that's going to be bad for you. Mm -hmm. It really makes for a lot of fun, a lot of, like, side-eyeing everyone, trying to figure (laughs) out who's not playing correctly, who's being a little shifty here. I can't wait to get back to the table. And I know everyone else, they had a great time and they're looking forward to it getting back to the table as well, too.
0: OK, I have a couple of quick questions. Then one, I've heard that this is basically a carbon copy of Battlestar Galactica because of the it, they didn't have the BSG rights anymore. So mm-hmm. they're like, OK, well, we want to remake Battlestar, but we can't. So let's put it in this universe. What changes did they make? The
1: most profound ones, like I said, were the transit track and the lore track. Mm -hmm. The lore track, that was something that the Admiral had, and that was a nuke. So basically, you could choose the time whenever you wanted to nuke and just blow everything out of the sky. But now then, it's one of those things where it constantly goes up every four turns or so. So it's like it's going to happen no matter what. Another thing that I miss from it that was a lot of fun where there were cards that would come up in BSG where you had to elect a new president. Mm -hmm. There are cards now. It was really kind of funny. I was the stowaway. Somehow something happened to the captain. People lost trust in him or something like that. And it went down to, you have a list of in order who goes next in the captain order. Mm -hmm. Well, it went to the bottom person. So all of a sudden the stowaway was the captain of the ship. (laughs) King Scott pops out of a crate. He's like, I'll do it. (laughs) So that's, that's a little bit different. I kind of like the election principle a little bit better because that really got funky because people would be really, like I said earlier, side-eyeing everybody. Like That
0: gives you another opportunity to learn about other people's motivations, whereas this says, no, no, this is just – this is how it's going to be. Exactly. But that can have its benefits too. Yeah. Let me ask you this. B.S.G. is kind of a lengthy game. How about Unfathomable? If I'm getting this to the table with a group of, say, f- five of us, how long are we going to be playing? Well, we were playing this game with five of us. It was probably
1: two, two and a half hours we played. So it's an investment. uh, So, Yeah, it definitely is an investment. But as you go along, you're going to get a little more familiar with things. You're going to be able to play a little bit quicker because this was teaching and playing all at the same time. This was the maiden voyage. Uh, Oh, I like what you did there. Thank you. But yeah, it's it's probably scratch about a half an hour, 45 minutes off once everyone's used to playing the game. But you never feel like there's really a downtime because you're busy watching people do their turns. See if anyone's giving away that they're a bad guy and, and you're not, or you're busy thinking, how am I going to screw over this crew here and sink this ship? There's a lot of things going on. So you never
0: really feel like you have A downtime during the game. Scott, at our last meetup, we had the opportunity to play The Thing Infection at Outpost 31, which Mm. has a lot of similarities. But I'm dealing out the cards. This was our very first playthrough. And my man, Stephen Brown, of Brown Castle Games, we're all set up. We're ready to go. And we're ready for the round one. And he's like, wait a minute. How does The Thing win? (laughs) And we were like, oh, No. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh. <laughs> turns out he wasn't the thing he wasn't the Eddie th- and he played his cards right and he, he was like look I promise I swear I swear <laughs> it was Nikki the whole time oh. sounds like fun I want to give that one a try you know what if you make it here on Saturday with the lobsters bring that one along because that's the kind of game that is right up their alley we all love conniving and cunning and blaming each other for things so bring it
1: there's a lot of that in this game here of unfathomable
0: Running low on supplies during your adventures? Don't want to shell out too much coin to gear up? Level Up's got your back. We've teamed up with Tabletop Tycoon to get listeners of the show 10% off a couple of the biggest titles they carry. First up, Nemo's War. You've heard our thoughts on this one. A grand strategy game jam-packed with meaty decisions. And the theme here, oh, I tell you what, it tells a story every time you play. Plus, Everdell, an early review here at Level Up and a personal favorite for both of us. If you don't have it, you've got to get in on it. Look, not many games get multiple expansions after they release, only the best. And Everdell, it's one of them. The perk just for you is 10% off Nemo's War, Everdell, or the Everdell Collector's Edition just by using promo code LEVELUP2022. You can visit their website at tabletoptycoon.com or click the link on our homepage at levelupgamepodcast.com. Add any of these gems to your cart, that's Nemo's War, Everdell, or the Everdell Collector's Edition, and use promo code LEVELUP2022, all caps, no spaces, for 10% off. Get these games on the table and level up! Scott, the last one I have for today for Recent Adventures is a 2018 game from Trevor Benjamin and David Thompson, published by AEG War Chest. We played this one together, too. We're going to stick with a bag building theme here, but let's go from World War II way back to, I guess this is supposed to be like Middle Ages. Yeah, something like that. A war chest is a bit of an abstract game. That is the theme kind of plays second fiddle to the gameplay itself. So what's going on in that gameplay? Each player is going to get an army designated by cards that can be dealt out before playing or even drafted. Each unit has a unit type. So you're going to gather up all the chips for that unit. You're going to place some of them into your bag and some of them off to the side as reinforcements. The board, pretty simple, just a hex board. But there are some spots that have a key spot symbol. Quite simply to win, you have to control a number of those key spots, you'll recall. A round of play, really easy. Each player's going to draw three tokens from their bag. Then you're going to take turns playing the tokens that you drew. For each token, you just refer to the card that it represents. Like, say, an archer token is going to have its own card, and you got that at the beginning of the game. It's sitting next to you, so you just look at that and you say, okay, now that I've drawn one of these archers, what can I do? Well, you can spawn it to the board. What if you already have one on the board? Well, you can spawn a second one somewhere, but here's where things really get interesting. You can bolster your archer by putting the chip On top of the one that you already have, you're effectively going to make it a little bit tougher to kill, or you can discard it to activate your archer chip on the board, getting some movement or perhaps even attacking, usually via the tactic that's outlined on the card. So obviously an archer is going to have some amount of range. Cavalry is going to be able to move faster, whereas pikemen are maybe going to be able to defend a little bit better, but otherwise not have the same kind of range as, for example, our archer. You can also discard the chip to add a new Archer chip to your bag. See, at the start of the game, you only put two of each of your unit chips into the bag. So for many of the units that have, say, four or five available, you've got to recruit those other ones and get them into your bag. So enter your bag management, right? See, for every Archer that you place on the board... That's one less that you have in your bag. Mm. For every Archer chip that you use to bolster an Archer, that's one less in your bag and a lower chance of drawing to be able to actually activate the Archer. This means that eventually, while you might have a bolstered Archer in play that's tough to kill, the chip is going to become scarce to draw. And to actually activate the Archer and utilize it is going to become far more difficult. The winner of the game is whoever controls four of those key points at the start of their turn. And what a game this is. Scott, for a half an hour experience, this thing provided a metric ton of decision making. Yeah,
1: it it was a lot of fun because it didn't overstay its welcome. It wasn't something that I didn't feel I got in deep enough to enjoy the game. They really found the sweet spot for this game.
0: Yeah, it's uh, you know what I love that while you have eight units when you start, they come from a pool of like sixteen to choose from. Mm-hmm. So you got a little variability in like one game. I might have the archers and the crossbowmen and something. You know, I might I might have a ranged army, an army that can shoot you from far away. Whereas you might have cavalry and you know knights and have some some better movement, some real beefy attacks. A lot of variability from one game to the next based on the cards that you either draft or just opt to start with. We do have some rules for four player uh, where basically two people are each going to take turns, play, you know, like, okay, this round I get to play the three chips or this turn I get to play one chip and then you. Now, one question I have for you here. Now, you're saying
1: Mm -hmm. you reach in, you pull out the chip, you put the chip on the board. Do you think that it hurts it by just using the chips? Do you think it would be better if you pull out a chip and then put a
0: miniature on the board there? It would make it better? Or what's your opinion on that? I love the chips. I love the production. Now, when we say chips, Adventures, we're not talking chits. We're not uh, – Chips and chits. That probably sounds remarkably <laughs> similar. That, that uh, ought to when be a, uh, a board game cafe place. Chits and chips. Chips and chits. <laughs> they could serve chili and it could be chips and chits and chits. <laughs> I think that by having the, the poker chip style chips, these aren't like little – Chits. These are chips with a P and they're those clay chips, kind of like the iron clays from brass. They're like a a good solid Mm -hmm. poker chip. They have a nice jingle in that bag. They've got some weight to them. I don't want to put a miniature on the board, and then it's going to make it difficult to determine the bolstering. Plus, then what do you do with that chip? You know, if if you're just using the chip to activate a unit, you move the unit and you put it in the discard pile. But what about when you're bolstering? What about whenever you're recruiting? Everything works so elegantly with those chips, and they feel like a quality component. Uh, Everyone talks about chip theory games, for example. Mm -hmm. They've got all those those nice hefty chips with the... this has the same feel, like you're playing with something of quality. Yeah. I don't need minis, don't need cardboard, exactly as they have It's perfect.
1: Sounds good. I definitely have looked at it a few times thinking, I'm going to pick this up for my own collection here, but haven't pulled the trigger on it as of yet. Hearing you talk about it again, I
0: may have to do that. Well, you know what? I have my copy. It being a two-player game, if, if it's a game that you're looking to play with me, we can go deeper. You know, the rule book, it's got various historical battles and oh, yeah, scenarios in the that. back. You're my, yeah, so we could set it up, be like, okay, we're going to do this war. Which side do you want? And then play it a couple times and then switch sides, switch teams. Okay, well, you're going to be the other guys. We're going to see who can win this time and sort of vary up our strategies. I think I mentioned already, they do have uh, the rules for four player as well. So, all sorts of variability introduced to honestly a fairly thematic, abstract game.
1: Good way of putting it. I knew it was hiding out somewhere. It was behind that shrubbery and I did not see it. (laughs) That sneaky
0: little jingle. (laughs) I hide the button. Scott, it's time for the Top 100 update. We're going to start with a couple of falling stars. Puerto Rico is down two slots to number 33. This was a previous number one on Board Game Geek. It's still in the top 100 at number 33. Mm -hmm. Pandemic Legacy Season 2 down a couple of spots to number 43. And Isn't that wild? Because Season 1 was number one for a while. Season 0 just came out a year ago. It's cracked the top 100 already but it looks like season two is already uh, uh, maybe mm. seen its highest point hard to tell speaking of highest points let's look at the highest peaks these games are higher in the top 100 than they've ever been lost ruins of arnak is up to 32 Ooh. eclipse second on for the galaxy right behind it at 34 barrage is up to 41 and pax Pamir 47 there's a couple games that we keep talking i know mentioning yes. even <laughs> these updates neither of us have played either one yet so soon lisboa is up to number 58 and pandemic legacy season zero is up to number 78 now we've got a bit of birthdays here starting with the best one (laughs) well how long has twilight imperium been on there four years (laughs) another favorite of mine through the ages a new story of civilization has been on there for six star wars imperial assault seven years in the top 100 eldritch horror right behind it at eight years and we mentioned it in falling stars puerto rico has been in the top 100 on bgg for 20 years wow i was just gonna take a guess and stab at it at 15 but 20 years that's some serious staying power your uh your high school kids out there they when they were born puerto rico was <laughs> already a couple years in the top 100 oh i love it scott we got a fun review game today we're going to talk about merchants of the dark road one that we both demoed at pax bought it instantly and man it keeps making it back to the table you ready for this
1: yes i am
0: Designed by Brian Surrey and published by Elf Creek Games in 2022, Merchants of the Dark Road puts players into the boots of traveling merchants, buying and selling weapons and goods, fulfilling the Queen's commissions, and delivering heroes. Play lasts for 13 rounds, the end of which players will tally up their points and coin. Whichever they have the lower amount of is their final score, and the merchant with the highest score wins the game. To give you a sense of how to play the game, let's start with the board. Now this is an overhead view of your town, which has several locations that you can visit going around a rondelle. Each player has a wagon meeple representing their location in the town, all of which begin in the same spot. The spaces to which you can travel are the intersections between two of the action locations on the board. So when you park your wagon at one of these intersections, you get to choose which location you would like to activate. For example, the very first intersection on the board, if visiting that spot, will allow you to choose whether you want to visit the Great Bazaar to buy some items, or the Queen's Commission's district to take on a delivery contract. The board also has four spaces for special buildings, which are activated when a player uses an illuminated die. The important thing to note about the locations on the board is that, for the most part, visiting these town locations allow players to accumulate items, money, contracts, and heroes. Finally, there's a location that will allow you to deliver your heroes and commissions to their requested destinations, earning points, money, and other rewards in the process. Let's stop here and talk about the player board. Each player's double-layered inset board contains a grid where items can be stored. So as you acquire items, they're going to take up some amount of space when you place them onto this grid, so you do have some limit on how many you can carry. You also have spaces for heroes to hitch a ride, commissions, and other game components. The main function of the player board, however, is to house your action dice. At the start of play, each player has three dice, which are slotted in the first three portions of the action allocation portion of your player board, and an area for the remaining four dice that you have in your reserve. Without making things too complicated, just know that these dice are how you move and function in the game. On your turn, you'll take one from your reserve, and you'll bump one of the three slotted dice up to the active section. And in doing so, you get a bonus action, depending on which slot you bumped the die out of, and your movement for the turn is now going to be dictated by the value of the die that you displaced. So we're going around town gathering items and selling them to heroes as they tag along to go out on their grand adventures. We have these commissions to deliver. How do we go about dumping all these things off of our wagons and get some points? Well, as I mentioned earlier, that is simply a location on the main board called Yerg's Excursions. When you opt to visit that location... This is your chance to choose an outlying town to deliver your goods, heroes, and commissions to. As there are six of these locations to potentially visit, a smart player will have accumulated several things that all need to go to the same location, as you can only visit one when you take this action. Suppose you choose the Northbreak location to deliver to. You'll be able to turn in any heroes from your wagon that were looking to go to Northbreak as they've been delivered to their destinations, as well as any commissions for the Northbreak location as well. In each instance, you'll be rewarded a combination of coins and points, as well as other potential rewards, such as wagon upgrades or end-game bonus cards. Now, hold the phone. Here's where the game got me. All kinds of tingly. When someone is traveling to a location, they declare where they're going, and then other players have the opportunity to tag along. So in our example, you want it to deliver to Northbreak. Suppose King Scott has a hero on his wagon that also needs to go to Northbreak. He's probably going to join you. So, you've determined that you're going to Northbreak, and you're going to decide if you're going by the Dark Road or taking a Shortcut, which requires the collected three lanterns. Regardless of your pick, a card from the respective deck, Dark Road or Shortcut, will be flipped over. And then one die for each player going along this journey will be rolled, and the dice are placed at the bottom of the card in their respective numbers. Now each player, one at a time, will remove a die from the card and take a reward shown. Interestingly enough, low numbers yield penalties, while high numbers typically provide rewards, but this is going to be varied from one traveler card to another. Players will continue to restock their wagons and make deliveries until the end of the 13th round, at which point the game ends, and remember, your score is the lower of your points or coin, and the player with the highest score wins the game. Now, there are a ton of extra variables at play here. Players select a companion card when they travel. Each player begins the game with a steed. The market of items for purchase is on a rotating wheel, thus the cost and availability is constantly changing. There is a special resource called Quartz which can trigger abilities on your companions. Illuminated dice, yes, a yellow die that can be acquired, let you take all three actions when you visit a location. And more and more. And more. The point is, I don't want to muddy the waters of this review by teaching you every little detail. Hopefully, this walkthrough has given you a sense of what to expect when Merchants of the Dark Road is on your table. What about the time it was on ours? Did we enjoy it? Let's find out level up style in the 8-bit breakdown of Merchants of the Dark Road. In the land of Lumi, a darkness approaches as the forces of evil approach. Fate calls upon the bravest of warriors to hold it at bay. Some opt for steel, weapons forged in fire and battle-tested. Keen rangers pursue battle with arrows true. Others still rely on wit and wisdom calling upon arcade magic to repulse their enemies, but not you. You, um, yeah, um, you ride around your wagon and sell things to these people. Patrick, thank
1: you very much for the walkthrough of Merchants of the Dark Road. I keep on wanting to say merchants of a dark road, but no, no. In this land, there's only one dark road. There is road, one I guess. dark
0: road. Yes, yes, yes. yes. <laughs>
1: so, art
0: and components. What were your thoughts on them? I'll tell you what, there's a ton of both, <laughs> both art and components. <laughs> this, this box is packed. Let's start with our board. Uh, it slots together, almost like a puzzle. It looks good. It's got that magnetized market wheel. And I thought, well, wait, if that's a magnet, it's just going to stick to it. No, it actually rotates uh, on that mm-hmm. magnet. It's phenomenal. Then we can move on to the player boards. They're actually shaped like wagons. Hello, double set, mm-hmm. uh, like dual player boards where everything fits down in and they're shaped like your wagon. They actually assist in your gameplay, too, because everything slots in various parts, and they have the symbols on there. The bits that you need in the game, we're talking mainly chits for the items, but there is an upgrade pack, which I couldn't help myself but get. The upgrade pack (laughs) gives you acrylic or resin or whatever that kind of plastic is for your courts for your lanterns it gives you metal horseshoes it's just so well done and you know what i didn't get the metal coins and i'm kind of regretting it <laughs> i have seen other people post pictures of these things they look amazing they've got the interesting shape that the chits do the colors that the chits do and who doesn't love the clinking sound that metal coins mm-hmm. make then you got the art there's a ton of it between the board, the buildings. Uh, you got all those different characters, the heroes, the, the steeds. You, not only do you have the, the horses for the steeds, but they have like that abominable snowman looking thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The companions, what with the bumblebee companion, and like all the different <laughs> things that you can have going along with you. There's a ton of it. And I love it. It's quite thematic to the game. There are two things to take a
1: look at here as far as the art and, art and components. You have the basic and you have the blinged out version. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, once you played the blinged out version, you don't really want to go back to the original one. Right. Now, this really affects the lanterns, the horseshoes, the crystals, but everything is top notch. I mean, they really did a lot of work on this. The artwork is fantastic on everything. I love the items you put in your cart. You have on one side, they're normal, flip them over, they're... Have like gold inlay on them, so you know that they're upgraded items. In mm-hmm. the player boards, you put things on, even those are double layered. So you have like little areas to put things in. So it's not like you're just laying it on top and they're sliding all over the place. You know exactly where they go. So fantastic job on the art and components. Oh,
0: yeah. We're talking over 30 custom dice that have that like blue and yellow marbling to them with the stars on the front. Mm-hmm. This game's got an insert to hold everything. A little bit confusing. It does come with one one of those sheets that, like, here's how everything goes in the yeah. insert. And I had, to, I had to, like, break out my readers to make sure I was doing <laughs> everything right, getting everything back in the various markets. I think this was one of the upgraded trinkets. But, like, for the black market, you had that little, like, bag, like a bag of holding that rotates oh, yes, around yes. it. The map up there. Those were little resin pieces, too. Uh, You know, what? anything that that a game does that gets you that much more into it, I think is beneficial. And it certainly did so for Merchants of the Dark Road. Let's talk bit number two, theme and immersion. What'd you
1: think? I wrote down one thing here with my notes, but as I started thinking about it more, I kind of changed my mind. There's some immersion in the game, but it doesn't hit you over the head thinking that you're actually riding on a cart, going through the wilderness, trying to drop things off Mm -hmm. at different towns, take people there. But as I thought about it, yeah, you do kind of get that feeling because you're busy thinking, well, I only have this much room left in my cart to take this, but I need this in order to entice the other people to come on board for me to take them with me. Yeah, you do kind of get that. And especially whenever you go on the dark road, whether he have lanterns or not to go on the road, do I want to go with the lanterns? Do I not? Do I want to go along with that person and help them out? There is a lot of stuff going on here. So, yeah,
0: after you start playing for a little while, you do feel like you're immersed in this game. They give you a little bit of fluff text on those adventure cards, too. When you're traveling, you flip it up and it gives you a little – a very little story about the location that you're going to or the travel that you're on. So they do a great job of keeping you into the theme of what is otherwise, I think, a very mechanism forward game. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's not like all numbers and min-maxing. Generally, yes, you're going to be doing what makes the most strategic sense as opposed to like what your character would do. Right. But by the time all said and done, I think most players are going to be able to take a look back and be able to tell a little story about what they did in the game. It's kind of weird. Like all the classic RPG style games, this is trying to capture the shopkeep atmosphere. Like you have that shop that you can go and get your supplies and someone at Elf Creek or the designer thought, hey, I want to be that guy. <laughs> Not the hero, not the wizard, not the bad guy, Dark Lord. No, I want to be the shopkeep. And I want to ride around town with my wagon of wares and (sighs) made for a heck of a board game. That it
1: did. That it did. Now, our bit number three is complexity. What did you think about the complexity of this game?
0: I would definitely put it above medium weight as far as complexity goes goes. You know what? I put in my notes, uh, like my notes start with, okay, so nothing is complex. (laughs) It's like, well, I guess that's true. Every little thing that you do is simple enough to figure out, but the sum total of all those little things make for a game that is on the heavier side. Scott, this has a ton of iconography.
1: Yes, it does. I mean, it almost feels like you're going to get out the codex and look up the hieroglyphics of what you need to do on an Egyptian temple or something. Because
0: there are symbols for anything and everything you can possibly Mm -hmm. think of. They filled that gloss, like the back page of the rule book. You know how normally it's like they list seven or eight icons and what they do. This has like 35 different icons Mm -hmm. and what they mean. Now, a lot of them are intuitive. I don't want to scare anyone away. A lot of them you are going to look and be like, oh, I know what that is. Oh, I know what that does. Oh, we see that symbol up here. That's a commission, obviously. But then some of them, it's like, wait, a treasure chest with a two above it. A treasure chest with a one above it. What's going Every one of them is there, to their credit. But maybe the thing that might scare us away a little bit is that every one of them is there. And it kind of looks overwhelming. So while we say nothing that you're actually doing is difficult, there's a lot of little things that you can potentially do. Mm-hmm.
1: It doesn't seem like a complex game. Because mm-hmm. you're going to be moving around Rondell and going to different places and doing things. But each one of these is almost a mini game on its own. Yeah, kind of. Where each place you go to, you're going to be doing something completely different. You want to make sure you have the goods for the passengers to go to the town. So each thing layers on top of the other one. So it is, like you said, I definitely say it is higher in the complexity than you would expect it to be. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean it's something to put you off. It's a very enjoyable game with the complexity that is a little bit higher than what you might be expecting from it.
0: Bit number four is the rulebook and the learning curve. Our first run-in with this rulebook was at PAX, as we mentioned, being taught how to play. So getting it back to the mm-hmm. table, I'm going to crack that rulebook back open – You know, it is surprisingly short, given the amount of things that are going on in this game. Uh, It offered plenty of pictures, plenty of examples. Generally speaking, this is one of the better rule books that I've seen. And I mentioned that giant iconography reference, and Mm -hmm. you're going to need it. Well, it's giant because they didn't miss anything. They got every little detail in there, like the treasure chest, the treasure chest with the one above it and the treasure chest with the two above it. One means get an item. One means get an item worth one. One means get an item verse two, uh, worth two. They could have just put that all with the treasure chest icon and like put it in the paragraph next to it. No, they put each of the different icons on the iconography yeah. sheet. I thought they did a fantastic job there. So what do you think about the learning curve here? The learning curve, Whenever we did get a chance
1: to try it out at PAX, sure, you got enough that you learned enough to be dangerous at this game. Mm-hmm. You were able to take the rulebook... And parse it down into the important things we need to do. Probably the first one or two turns, you have to take a look at the rule book just to remind yourself. Mm -hmm. But as you go along, everything starts coming together. And you see how one piece leads to another, leads to another, leads to another. So it's a very intuitive game whenever you do it. The only one that I think is a little bit off is the Black Markets Rondell. It sits there. It's like the redheaded stepchild of the game there where you don't really know what to do with it. And it's like, eh, I don't
0: know. What's the chance to get
1: your upgraded weapons on the cheap? I never really thought about doing that. I was too busy thinking about the other main parts to hit and never really thought about going to the black market. So mm. whenever you go back and play it again, hey, maybe I'll give that one a try. This definitely is one of those games that sticks in your head thinking, well, what
0: if I do this differently the next time? Let's get the game back out. Let's play it again. I do think this is a game that's going to – do. would you agree? It's going to take a learning game, an entire oh, oh, game. Definitely. And it's not like you're still figuring things out by the end of it. But by halfway through, as you're starting to put the pieces together, you're going to be like, oh, wow, I really shouldn't have done that last turn. And I shouldn't have done that three turns ago. Like it has you antsy for the next play because, oh, I get it now. It takes that game to get it i tell you what, they give us that, where do I find things? It's like a traveler's guide to the right, town. yes. Because I feel like in testing, they probably found out that a lot of players are going, wait a minute, where do I get horseshoes? How do I get another illuminated die? Mm-hmm. Where do I get an upgraded weapon? So as you have these questions as you're playing, where do I get quartz? That's all going to be answered on one card. They give you a little card that it says – it says right on it with a quartz symbol, where do I get quartz? And then it says, here's where you can get quartz. Mm -hmm. It lists all the options. Where do I get horseshoes? Where do I get upgraded weapons? Because inevitably, after you've figured the game out, you're going to run into, oh, I should deliver an upgraded weapon plus a quartz plus uh, I need a horseshoe to do – okay, well, how do I do that? I know it was taught already. You can just look at that card. Where do I get another horseshoe? Go here, get this, do that.
1: I know myself personally, I don't like to ask a lot of questions because if I ask a lot of questions, I feel like I'm taking away from the enjoyment of everyone else around the table playing games. So I kind of sit there quietly and try and work it out in my head. Mm -hmm. I may not play optimally, but I'm going to get the game in. Like you said, you play a whole learning game that gets everything in there. Then you just need the little like, cheat sheet to take a look at something and you're right back into the game here immediately so get that one game under your belt ask as many questions as you possibly can and after that man the game goes so quickly
0: bit number five where is the meat every game's got those moments where you feel like oh this is the part where the decisions are made that is the meat of the game where is it in merchants of the dark road well there's two places actually i would have to say The main
1: or that's the meat of the game, because that's where you're going to be going around the town, getting all the main things to do. Mm -hmm. The other thing that's kind of surprising is whenever you go to the little towns, the outlying towns, are you going to go the dark road, or are you going to go with the road with all your lanterns? So you have to take that in consideration and see what you're going to get there. That one really gave a thematic fun point. The artwork on the cards, well, you're going to go down the dark road. Well, it does look a little sketchy. Look at that bridge. bridge. I don't know if our wagon's going to go across that bridge there. (laughs) there. There's a lot of things they do to make this so thematic. Those two things that really stood out in my mind is the main thing. Planning your moves around the rondelle and going on the journeys out to the outlying cities.
0: Now, what did you think? Well, I agree with you. I think that moving around that town is absolutely the meat of the game. But I'm going to take it one step deeper and that's the way that you go about moving around the town the dice the the bumping mechanic of your dice selecting one of those three, bumping it up, which one are you going to bump up? That's going to determine what you get, as well as Mm. how far you can move. And in doing so, selecting one of the dice below it to take its place, well, that's going to determine what your options are going to be next turn. So you're not only having to think about, okay, what do I need to get done this turn? You also have to weigh that against, what does that mean for next turn? So I'll be in this location. Next turn, I'll have the option of moving one, or moving one, or moving four what's at the one spot, what's four spots away, can I make do with that, and what die am I going to use uh, to displace the four in order to move my four? I feel like there was a ton of decision-making there, and really, you're just making one decision, but so many variables going into that one decision, and it's so remarkably important because it's going to say where you're going on the rondelle around the town, and the variables that are injected by other players. Somebody uh, uh, messing with the market, for example, or shifting, shifting the black market, the little icon on the black market. You know what I mean? The little piece there to show what you're going to get. That might change how you're weighing what you want to do. Whether or not someone went on a travel and you got to join them. Oh, geez. Well, now I don't even have to go to the travel location. So I don't need to use that too anymore. There's so much factored into that die bumping mechanic. I loved it. Yeah. And whenever you
1: stop and think about it, that adds on so much more complexity to this game. Mm-hmm. But it's still so manageable. You never feel overwhelmed. Mm. It gives you just enough pressure to do the right move. But you never feel like, oh, I failed completely or I'm out of this game completely. There's always something you can do. I mean, that, that really does say something
0: about the design of this game. Scott, a lot of games today introduce replayability and variability through the beginning of the game setup. Bit number six, replayability and variability. We do see that as a factor in Merchants of the Dark Road. You have starting heroes, starting steeds, starting deeds, and a few other factors. But you've also got four special buildings on the board. You've got ten different ones that can be selected. For any given game, so you're going to find a lot of variation there. When you fulfill a commission, you have several options of what you want for your reward. I mean, those wagon upgrades alone, those are going to introduce Mm -hmm. something unique to what you're going to do. And only you that's going to shape your play. We had that one game. I got the wagon upgrade that whenever you bumped a die and got an item, you instead got an upgraded item. Oh, yes, yes. Holy cow, that changes the entire game plan. Mm
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, son of a gun. I'm listening to this, Aaron, and I'm thinking, I either need to steal your copy or go buy my own copy of it. <laughs> I mean, it it really does have a lot of replayability. It has the whole thing in your mind of, I want to go back and try this again and try something different. It's been a while since a game has come up that I'm so hyped
0: on that I'm like, I can't wait to play this again. So every game you're going to be buying items, you're going to be recruiting and delivering heroes, you're going to be dabbling into commissions, but you are going to have games where you're going to get a ton of courts and you're going to be able to activate companions like crazy. Mm-hmm. You're going to have games where you're able to play the market for tons of cheap items and get yourself a hero and a steed that allow you to carry extra items so that you can cash in big I think replayability here comes from the fact that you can play a very different style game to game. And it's not decided based on what you were dealt at the start of play, but rather the strategies are pursued by your own volition. And you know what I think does this game wonders for replayability? You can't do everything. Yes, yes, that's a good point. You can go down a path or two or three only so far. And it's going to be at the expense of some other paths that you can take. So, inevitably, you go, oh, I want to play it again. I want to see what happens if I go with Quartz and Companions, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, a lot of games, they do have a
1: downside.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, were there
1: any downsides for you in this
0: game? Well, all that stuff we said about tons of little things to remember. It's a game that it's reserved for your gamer friends. No doubt. It's not going to be casual. There's going to be too much iconography for your average casual gamer to actually enjoy it. I didn't find it swingy per se, but there is die rolling here from the values of Mm -hmm. your action dice to the dice that you roll when traveling. So I suppose that if you're, if you like everything to be fully deterministic, that might be a a turnoff. And you know what? It's not terribly interactive from turn to turn. What you're going to be able to do is going to be affected by the decisions of other players. Mm Mm-hmm. But generally, the most interaction that you're going to see is going to come from joining each other when somebody travels. You're not fighting each other. You're not playing take that cards. Uh, nothing's wrong with that. But if you are trying to catch up to the leader or somehow influence someone else's play, I felt like you had some limited options to go about doing so. Well, mine aren't going to be as eloquent as yours. I'm very um, eloquent. My Yes, yes, yes.
1: My downsides are – This is definitely a cash grab for the company because once you play with the upgraded items, (laughs) you don't want to play with the base items or anything. Right, right. The biggest downside to it is that, well, and it's hard to even say it's really a downside, is that you can't get the whole game experience in a game. You have to play it and then try it another way and then try it another way. It's tough to get the whole experience into one game. And like you said, Trying to remember all the iconography as to what everyone everything does and feel comfortable in what you're doing. It's
0: got a bit of a barrier to entry that way, doesn't it? Yes. yes. Was it fun and who's it for? What do you think, Patrick? This game is fun. Wow. Wow, I put wow three times. That's three wows. Scott, you know I normally don't go past two wows. I got no, no, wow. No, three no, no, no. You definitely have that two wow. I'm a two w- wow kind limit. of guy. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I love the art, love the components. The playtime's perfect. It doesn't overstate. its welcome. The depth. This game sings for me. It took a couple of rounds, a couple sample rounds, it packs. And that was it, and I was hooked. I bought it, and I'm glad I did. It's going to be back to the table regularly over the next few years, I'm sure. Heck Scott, we're recording today, so we got in all of our plays that we needed in order to talk about the game. I should be thinking about the next few review games and when I'm going to get in more plays of those. But, like, <laughs> I have the lobsters coming this weekend, you know what? I'm going to show them how to play Merchants. Oh, there you go. I like it. Now, who's it for? I think it's for a group that wants a game that they're going to come back to regularly. You know what I mean by that. Like, if you're going to play a game once and then shelf it for a few months, it's going to be hard to appreciate. In the game. Because of that, like, having to re-familiarize yourself with the iconography and where to find things, I mm-hmm. think that if you're on your fourth play this week, oh, you're really going to love it. If you're on your you know your second play and it's been two months, uh, you gotta like relearn things. If you've got a group that plays a game over and over before trying the next game, I think you're gonna find Merchant's offers some depth that many games don't. And also, uh, I had mentioned in the downsides, like there's not a whole bunch of player interaction. Some folks really love that. What do you think, Scott? Was it fun? Who's it for?
1: I think it was a ton of fun. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Now. It was a pleasant surprise. When we tried it out of packs. it was okay. I mean, I wasn't really blown over by it. But then again, we were hit with a time limit. We had a certain amount of time. We could play, learn everything all in one period of time there. So it was kind of tough to really get a good feel for it. Playing it out whenever we got it actually home, it really opens the game up. And this is great for people who have game for quite some time. This is people who have played a lot of games. This is a great one where you say, oh, have you played this? It's similar to that. So that kind of helps on the learning curve of it. I hate to say it, but this is not for a casual gamer. There's a lot of decisions to be made. This might be someone who has been a casual gamer for a little while. And you see, they kind of want to get something a little meatier. Needless to say, this I have got to put a big stamp on this one. This one is not in-law approved.
0: I was waiting for it. I was like, come on, you got a catchphrase.
1: Yes, yes. (laughs) This one definitely is not in-law approved. It's one where I would put it out and I would say, well, here's a Rondell. And they'd be like, okay, I'm done. I'm out. I'm out. (laughs) And I'm not saying that in a bad way. I'm just saying that there's a certain audience that will gravitate to this and a certain audience that won't. Not that one's better than the other, but it's it's definitely for, yeah, yeah, come on. My in-laws might listen to us. So it's very important that you know your audience before you introduce
0: this game to them. All that said, Merchants of the Dark Road, a clear winner for Level Up. Scott, I can't wait to play it more and more over the next year. And when we do our next top five, I think this has a really good chance of being my number one.
1: I know we'll definitely be in the top five, but we'll see what's... Uh, we've still got a couple more uh, episodes here yet, so you don't know what's going to happen exactly yet.
0: Look back... ago today we reviewed Power Grid. This is a game where you each play as, uh, what, power moguls? Is that a thing, a power yeah, mogul? Yeah, I think so. Okay, yeah. so you're investing in what is early on coal and oil and forms of dirty energy and you're upgrading power plants and moving on to burning garbage and then nuclear energy until you eventually get to wind and clean energy sources all in an effort to power more cities connecting your grid throughout the map and the first person to hit so many powered cities wins the game. Scott, do you see a future game day where you're bringing power grid back to the table? I think so. Whenever I played this, this was a game that
1: I was seriously lacking in. I would see it at a lot of game days whenever I'd go places to play games. I never once got into it. I glanced at it quickly one time, saw it out on the table, saw all the stuff laying around it, and I don't know. It looks kind of dry, kind of bland. It really surprised me how much fun I had playing it. Mm-hmm. It wasn't as dry as I thought it was. There was a lot more stuff going on in it than I thought was possible, yeah, I would be happy to play this anytime anyone said, hey, want to play Power Grid? I would definitely be on board
0: for that. Scott, I was at Jason's over summer, and he had a bunch of people over, and I did manage to get in another play of Power Grid. And you know what? I think Power Grid's going to be one of those games that I'm probably not going to be the one saying, oh, oh, let's play Power Grid. But I am the one that's going to be going, yeah, yeah, I'll get in on that. I'll get in on that. Yes. You know what I mean? I wrote mm-hmm. down this is kind of a one-trick pony, but it's a good trick. It's a really good trick. And whenever you have different power plants you get to pick from at the top of the board, and they change game to game, so we might have a 13, a 20, and a 9. Well, that's very different than the game where you had a 24 and a 25 and a 9. So, Oh, man, that's Mm going to change how we're bidding. Uh, It's certainly a numbers game. Uh, If you're the type of gamer that wants battles, if you want to get standing up and shaking all those dice in your hand, and you get tension and laughter – Power Grid might not be what you're looking for. I think this is one that we can recommend to gamers that enjoy mathing out and mapping out their turns, where you can put your mind to your place, see your decisions, yield rewards, which for a lot of us, I think is what we look for in a game. Definitely. So, Scott,
1: are you recommending Power Grid? I think I would have to do it with a caveat like you said. It's one of those ones that I will definitely play it if someone brings it up, but I don't know if I'd be the one
0: bringing it up. Well, there you go, the Time Warp, our look back at Power Grid from one year ago. Let's get on to some Lost Loot!
2: Silent Falls is a small coastal forest town in the heart of Northern California. It's quiet here, and since the recession a few years ago, people aren't as friendly as they used to be. It's been a rough few years for everyone, the major high school in town, Franklin Academy, last nestled in the wooded hills on the east side. It's the last day before winter break, and students shovel down the hallways, dusting off a light powder of snow from their jackets. It's cold today. Down the corridor, past the barren trophy case and peeling Franklin Academy decal plastered on the wall, hangs a bulletin board. A cluster of students are gathered at it and around the edges we see old posters for student body elections, sign-ups for football next year, and reminders about the upcoming senior ball littered about like mouse traps. But as the students part, we land on the flyer. They were all huddled around. Hello adventurers, and welcome to today's episode of Lost Lewis, the part of the show where I, your humble host Josh, get to talk about any and all games ranked below 1,000 on BGG. Today's game, I am happy to report, is ranked at nil, void, not available on BGG. That's right, this game's not even listed on Geek. so (laughs) ha 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 ha, I win! But I did cheat a little bit, because technically speaking, this game is a tabletop role-playing game. And I understand this is a board game podcast, and we don't really talk about, you know, things like Dungeons & Dragons or Call of Cthulhu a lot. But I was able to get permission from the great overlords that are Patrick and Scott to talk about this game today, as I wanted to shake up the formula a little bit.
0: Wait a minute, I didn't authorize this.
1: The king has decreed that this is allowable. Oh,
2: well then. Carry on, Sir Joshua of the Carolinas. Alice is Missing is a three-to-five-player role-playing game that takes place over three to four hours. It comes from Hunters Entertainment and Renegade Game Studios, a very familiar board game publisher as well, and is by Spencer Starkey. So if any of you adventurers have gone on the Level Up Board Game Podcast website, you are able to see a biography of some of the hosts here, including me, in that I include that I am a curated dungeon master from my friendly local game store, and that is still true. That's right, I get paid to run Dungeons & Dragons or other RPGs for players who want to sit down and have a good time because they otherwise don't have a means of finding people to play with. It's a great gig, I love it, and I've been playing Dungeons & Dragons for years, so it's awesome. But, as life is sometimes, people start to settle into DMs that they like, and not that I'm a bad DM, I just can't be there every week to run a campaign. I have obligations outside the game store that keep me from coming every week and doing a full-on campaign with people. Because of this, it's not guaranteed that I have players the nights I come. With that comes an opportunity that was presented to me, which is to, in fact, run games that rely more on a one-shot experience. There's more RPGs in the world than, you know, Dungeons and Dragons, Pathfinder, you know, Starfinder, all the Star Wars things. There's tons of RPGs. There's just as many RPGs as there are board games. But as I was presented with this opportunity to do more one-shot type situations, I came across looking at this game called Alice is Missing, which presented itself as a one-all experience in one session. But what really got to me was the fact that it marketed itself as a silent roleplay experience. In the game of Alice is Missing, you are playing as a group of friends who live in a small town called Silent Falls. The inciting incident is that your friend, Alice, has been missing for three days. One of the players acts as Charlie Barnes, who moved away from Silent Falls about a year ago and is coming to visit in town for winter break, the couple days after Alice has gone missing. The player who plays as Charlie Barnes acts as the dungeon master, or in this case, facilitator for the game to make sure everything runs smoothly. Each other player picks a character that has a relationship with Alice and spends the next 45 minutes to an hour world building with each other. Using some prompt cards, players are able to discuss with each other how they feel about one another, maybe certain secrets they have pertain to Alice or each other. They are also able to talk about different things in the game, such as locations where Alice may have gone missing at or may be located at. They are also able to discuss different people in the town who may be responsible or have hints or clues about where Alice may be as well. So in the game, Led by the facilitator, players discuss these topics, take notes, and prepare for the next 90 minutes when everything goes silent. The game comes with an automated timer that has musical background for ambiance and a timer counting down from 90 minutes. At different points in the game, players will draw cards from a common pool. These cards have different time indicators on them, showing what time you're supposed to pull these cards at. At the proper timestamp, players will look at their cards, follow the prompt on them, and include them in the role-playing 90-minute session. Players will do this until the very end of the game, and without any spoilers, resolve the story. Now, during the 90 minutes when players actually inhabit their characters, it is silent, as I have stated before. There is meant to be no talking whatsoever. The way this is done is that all communication with players is done via text messages. That's right, this role-playing game takes place entirely over your phone. There is no communication at the table after the world-building is done. So I'm going to go straight into talking about why I believe this is lost loot. I've been playing RPGs, especially Dungeons & Dragons, for many years. And this by far has had the most impactful experience on me in such a short amount of time. I don't want to give away any spoilers for the game. Even though you can play this game multiple times, I believe, there are some spoilers that could happen if I say too much. But here's what I want to say to all who are listening. If you are hesitant to try RPGs or to dive into that world, you don't necessarily have to start with Dungeons & Dragons. I would honestly suggest trying this one first, because it doesn't require you to speak, it just requires you to be able to text in a sort of character. Which is a lot easier for some people than actually talking at a table. What makes this game great is the intimacy you feel with the world you have created, even though this game only lasts three to four hours. During my play, I have felt so attached to each and every aspect that I had created, more so than the countless worlds that I have created in my Dungeons & Dragons campaign. This place felt so real and felt so alive that... I couldn't quite explain what made it so inhabitable. How easily this game transported me into this small northern California town. The way the, the rulebook is written is very, very good. It guides the facilitator through the experience and how to immerse all the players in it. What really makes this interesting for me is that I actually play this remotely over Discord with some of my friends who live around the country. And so we communicate over voice chat and then we text it using our Discord app. I wasn't expecting much from it. I was actually expecting it to kind of get clogged. But holy cow, what an experience I had. This game is, for lack of a better term, absolutely beautiful. It deals with very mature themes. Think of like the first season of Riverdale, the only good season, putting that out there. Or like Twin Peaks, maybe Stranger Things is a good aspect for this with all the supernatural stuff. Just the missing child aspect. There are so many great tropes that are implemented into this game, but feel so fresh and unique that it's like drinking a really cool glass of water for the senses. You get so invested into this experience that you feel as if you have actual stakes in this. When all the things were happening in the game, me and the other players were trying to figure out what happened to Alice, I got very emotional at the end. I will give a slight spoiler to what happened to me at the end as this happened just basically via roleplay. As I was searching for Alice in the various parts of this little town, I ended up trying to run over one of the people who I believed was responsible for taking Alice. But in my rage as a character I developed in that time, I accidentally mistook a random person for the person I was trying to hit, and I just randomly killed a person on the street in my fury, thinking that they had harmed Alice. And because there was already a police car following me for a speeding ticket, my character, through my own decisions, started to freak out and run into the forest that was nearby in the town. I was texting my friends, telling them what I had done. They were freaking out. Things were happening all over the place. I decided that because of my character's actions, more than likely the police officer might take a shot at me and made a decision to basically kill off my character slowly throughout the last two minutes of the game. With this decision, I probably had one of the most intense experiences in a role-playing game I ever had, texting my friends back and forth that I had been shot. Lots of things that happened in that game, things that discussions that had been had or secrets had been revealed, kind of all tied together in that moment as I was trying to get out my last words to my friends because I believed I was going to die. I had never had such finality in a game. It felt so good to end on such a melodramatic note. That caused me to just sit back and think for a second about what had just transpired. And during the after brief, there's a de- there's a debriefing after the initial game happens. I was able to talk with my friends and discuss like, "Holy cow, what did we just experience together?" We were all in awe but what we just experienced and what we created together in just a short amount of time. And we all agree this was a fantastic game. I definitely loved it the most, which is what I'm talking about today. But they agree that this was a once. They may not want to play it again because of how intense it was, but it, they are so glad that they took the time to do it. And that's what I think is in Lost Loot. RPGs have a tendency to be focused on such a thematic tie, like look at Dungeons & Dragons, that's high fantasy. Starfinder is all about space exploration. Call of Cthulhu goes into horror. But so often, little games like these that get released get overshadowed by the big boys. And these experiences are just lost in an ether of games. It's hard to talk about this game without giving away too many spoilers and with me wanting to keep the experience fresh for you. But if you enjoy campaign games which are getting more popular, games like Pandemic Legacy, Sleeping Gods, Near and Far, or even Betrayal Legacy, things of that nature, I would strongly recommend giving this a try. Share with a couple of your friends an experience that is like no other. The feeling of not saying anything... Trying to channel all your emotions through written word was absolutely thrilling and provided me with an emotional experience that I still haven't forgotten. I'm excited to play this game again. Hopefully by the time this recording comes out, I'll play it again with my friendly local game group because I'm bringing it to the store to try to get people to play this game. That's my invitation to you guys today is to try to find a copy of this game and play it with some of your friends. This will be something that you will talk about for weeks and weeks on end. I'm still talking about with the friends I played it with as well. This is not a difficult RPG to get into. The facilitator actually gets to play, which is a huge bonus. And the guide through the rulebook, for all intents and purposes, takes you through it seamlessly, helps everyone set expectations with one another, and makes everyone not only feel safe, but ready and able to handle the emotions you're going to experience as you play through the game. Well, Patrick Scott, I've talked long enough for today. Thank you so much for tuning in to Lost Loot. And remember, when you're walking through a local game store and you pass by the RPG section, keep your eyes out past the Dungeons & Dragons books, the Calls of Cthulhu, and other big-time name brand of RPGs. Look in the back for the small little booklet. You'll never know but you might find some Lost Loot.
0: Hey, thanks, Josh, for today's Lost Loot Alice is Missing. Did you ever play this one, Scott? No, I have not. It's one of those ones that I heard about it, and then it just went away. And it was a mystery. (laughs) I don't think it's on BGG either. I don't think you can look it up. That's all I know about it. I heard uh, Secret Cabal was talking about it like a a year or two ago, and I was intrigued, but I never actually pursued it. Yeah, Alice is Missing. Fantastic Lost Loot. That's one that, you know what, maybe we should give that a try. It it seems like an RPG that's got a lower barrier of entry. Neither of us are too big on RPGs, don't want to invest the time, but maybe this is a way to do it. I'm really intrigued here. I, I got to look more into this game. Well, thank you, Josh. Thank you for today's Lost Loot, Alice is Missing. Boy, we got a big episode, Scott. We got to keep things rolling. We're going to do a little Yes, dip- we do. Now, well, let's talk a little bit about the joy of two-player games. Let's go.
1: So today, we're going to talk about two-player games. Now, this is something a lot of people, it kind of sometimes gets logged into the whole idea of solo games as well, because mm-hmm. a lot of people want to play with a whole group of people, have... That group experience of four, five, maybe six people playing the game. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of times that two-player games can be a great thing to have in your back pocket to pull out and play. We did put a thing on BGG about this, about... What attracts you to a two-player game? Or what kind of games do you prefer with a two-player game?
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know what? I was going nutty thinking about, like, how are we going to make this work? And hey, we're the show that wants to incorporate the community. So we got the post up. And there's been all sorts of things here that looking through them, they have a lot of great
1: insight on this. And I got to say, this is wonderful. Thank you, everyone who put some information out here for us to take a look at. And help us it's sound wonderful,
0: smart. wonderful, the ideas you have. <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. So I put, I was thinking about how different a game can be based on whether you have one opponent or several. If a game has a card in it, for example, and this went right back to magic, just pretend like you have a card in X game and it says, deal five damage to any player, but you have to take two damage for playing it. Well, that's an obvious benefit one-on-one, because the net gain is three damage. I dealt you five, and I dealt myself only two. But if we're playing in a bigger game, in a game with more players, you're actively hurting one player and yourself, thus creating a benefit for all of the players that were not involved in this damage exchange. So, Scott, if I target you with that card, Ryan's sitting over there going, "Okay, Pat's down two, Scott's down five. I guess I'm the winner of this card being played, right? Of course, the card isn't worthless here. It simply becomes more narrow. That is, like, the times when you would want to play this card in a two-player game, it's going to be almost all the time to, in a multiplayer game, perhaps only when you're in the lead or, or when there's that one player catching up and you want to you wanna beat them down, right? I think a classic mm-hmm. game that captures this sensation for me is Dominion. When you're playing just two players, you have a much easier time managing what your opponent's capable of, seeing what they're doing, what they're adding to their deck. Furthermore, card values are different. A card like the Witch shapes play further in that if only one of the two players obtains it, that player is going to give all the curses out. The opponent's going to have a really, (laughs) really difficult time being able to catch up or being able to win the game. I said we want to talk about two-player games on our next episode. And as Scott said, we got a profound uh, amount of response to this one. What attracts you to a two-player game? What does a two-player game have to offer that multiplayer games lack? What are some of your favorites? And what games can be played with more than two, but you prefer them at two? We get some good responses. Scott, uh, give me one that stood out to you. Yes, we got one here from Bruce.
1: Two-player games are the only ones where I can really enjoy direct mean confrontation at higher player counts. The choice of who to attack and not to attack can be socially awkward or divisive can lead to King making. Well, yeah, definitely. Or player order can determine the outcome or enjoyment of the game. If some players are hate drafting and others aren't. exactly, I love the direct conflict of many head-to-head abstract strategies. And whilst something like Azul can be multiplayer, the potential meanness of the drafting phase means that it's a game that I much prefer at two players.
0: Okay. So similar to my two
1: damage, five damage thing, huh? Yeah. It's very interesting seeing that he's more into the confrontation of good against evil or the two player fighting against each other. Mm Mm-hmm i think important thing you know the person you're playing because if you come out playing mean against somebody that you don't know you can automatically get pigeonholed as that guy yeah that's true if you're playing mean against someone that you know you kind of know it and you you joke about it afterward about oh i whenever i did this i was doing that or whatever but i'm not one that i want to be known as that guy for being the ass to to play mean <laughs>
0: Maybe a little bit in contrast to that, Michael says the joy for me in two-player isn't the more intense competitive aspect of it, more just having a partner to play with on a regular basis at random times, often unplanned. Playing with more people requires structure, it's harder to get it working, there's a bit more coordinating... A lot of two-player gamers are partners, and it's really great to have something like board gaming as a common interest. Just sitting, talking together over a board game is something that strengthens relationships. I thought that was the real joy of it. And you know what? This was a pretty common response. I picked Michael's, but a lot of folks said, yeah, you know what? I play games with my spouse. That's the attraction of two-player games for me. Two-player games are great when the game is not the
1: important part, but the companionship is. Mm -hmm. You might want to just have a time when you're just sitting back, relaxing blowing off some steam and you're playing a light game you aren't like really heavily involved in it like blitzkrieg we're talking about earlier Mm -hmm. yeah it's one of those games you're playing you aren't really heavily invested in it but it's still something that gives you something to chat over while you're sitting with someone having a coffee just kind of unwinding after a crappy week at work or something like that And that's just such a a nice center point for you to be focusing on and playing and laughing and just getting that nice deep breath and exhaling that a lot of people need at times. Scott, I saw you picked out the response from Daniel. What did he have to say? Yeah. As others have said, having a more direct and meaningful experience at two players is my main attraction. I play games at two player, not just two player only games. Although I have some of those too with my wife, with my kids, and with some of my gaming buddies, whether it's showing up early, staying late, or one-off game night. The planning is more straightforward, as there are not more players to add variables before my next turn. Mm, There's a lot of action, reaction to the move, which I think is fun. Oftentimes, the pace is a bit quicker. Generally, it's a chess match, a battle of wits, with various and different rule sets.
0: And that is a great way of looking at it. I like that he incorporated the word reaction. Two-player games let you, well, not only reaction, but also prediction. I I think that one of the the best aspects of a two-player game is that you get to try and predict what your opponent's going to do based on what you would do if you were in their shoes or what it looks like their next move is. And then also reaction. What did they do? And how am I going to respond? And is my planned response good enough? Or do I need to pivot from what I had in mind? That's a lot harder to do in a four or five player game, you might be able to single Mm -hmm. out the person that's, you know, their army is to your right. Or you might be able to single out the person who's building their stained glass window using the same color pieces or that needs the same one as yours. But there's an awful lot of variables to keep track of that you can't possibly predict and react to all of them. Whereas in a two player game, you, can yeah i i agree that
1: it's one of those things that you get tied up a lot of times with whenever you're playing with multiple people okay i'm here i have three turns till my next turn they're gonna do that they're gonna do that they're gonna (laughs) and you're mapping things out so much that you don't really take the moment to really enjoy what's going on or you're inevitably gonna miss something Exactly, yes, and then you could be really upset with yourself afterwards for missing something, where I know I've played with people before. I played Dinosaur Island one time with someone that they made one bad move, and they were salty for the entire rest of the game. Boy,
0: this really made an impression. You've mentioned this one a couple times.
1: I wish I was there to be a fly on the wall. Oh,
0: man, yeah. It was just like, dude, seriously, it's just a game. Go with it. Well, before we get on to our final thoughts on it, I wanted to bring up what Laserlike had to say. Now, this is lengthy, Scott. Bear with me, but uh, okay. he put a lot of thought. He or she put a lot of thought into this, so I wanted to give it its time. Other than games with mechanics that really demand more than two players, like many social deduction games or games with negotiating or alliances, I think that almost every game gets better at two players. Mm. This is because mm. at two players, the strategy and tactics become more pure and more direct. In a four-player game, I can make a particular move, but the real impact of that move is not necessarily clear because there's so much that can change from one turn to the next. In a two-player game, any move I make can be considered and planned out with much more certainty as to what it's going to mean, both for my opponent and for me when my turn comes again. Put another way. In almost any game, a two-player match is one where it feels like my decisions matter the most, where my fate is in my own hands, and where the game is a competition or a mental struggle between myself and my opponent. As you add more players, more uncertainty comes into the game, and while that's not identical to randomness, uncertainty can have the same practical effect of randomness in that the decision-making gets a little fuzzy. At least for me, I very much enjoy the more chess-like experience of having a game be a straightforward competition, pitting my decision-making against my opponents. He should start a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: Excellent thoughts. Thank yeah. you, Laser. That's a wonderful way of looking at it. The idea that it's a competition between you and one other person, and there's no other outside factors playing on that that's just your mind versus their mind Mm -hmm. and there are times whenever that's what you want in a game and it's it's great to have that scott are there any multiplayer games that you prefer at two players Star Wars Outer Rim is one that I kind of like there are two players Mm -hmm. because if you're going to be a bounty hunter and you're trying to get the bounty on a person that's on the other person's ship Mm -hmm. and trying to get through all the Imperial blockades and the rebel blockades, stop on the planets and get the equipment that you need to get the bounty on the other person's ship. It's definitely fun with more players, but I think it makes it a much more interesting game whenever you play it just the two
0: players, though. Well, and you have the predictability. You know where the syndicate ships are going to be, or you know that they can't move four times prior to your next turn. So you have a little bit more agency over planning out what you're going to do in a game like Outer Rim. Yes, yes. No, what did you think? What, uh, do you have any games that stick out in your mind? Oh, there's plenty. I'll just highlight one. I thought Emotep was – fun, and I'm not talking Emotep the duel. I mean actual Emotep, yeah. the, the four-player game. I think it's phenomenal at two. You and I sat and played that multiple times. And you know what? I've, I've played it before at three, and I haven't tried it at four yet. I don't even want to. I think it shines <laughs> at two. There's obvious answers, like Star Wars uh, Rebellion. They have some rules there for mm-hmm. four-player, but let's be honest. It's two. I think War of the Ring does the right. same thing. Scott, what's your favorite two-player specific, only two-player game? I would have to say my favorite one for that, and
1: this is a benefit because my wife really loves it as well too, is Seven Wonders Duel. It gives you enough. (laughs) You win this round. uh, It gives enough randomness, but it's not completely random. You see what some of the lines of the cards are going to be, but other ones are put face down so you aren't exactly sure what's going to happen she loves to play it as well too Mm -hmm. makes it that much more special because i get to share my hobby with her with something that she enjoys and i'm not looking at her and she's just like going through the motions trying to get through the game and everything just to make scott happy (laughs) right right oh
0: i I know what you mean what one comes to your mind seven wonders duel but you took it (laughs) it's the one that i wrote down i don't know what i'm going to say now I didn't even (laughs) look at your notes there on that, so I apologize. You know what? I'll go with Star Wars Rebellion. I know that it's technically got rules for four, but let's be honest, it's a two-player game. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. We won't get into the how to play or deep dive into it, but that just every time I play it, it's Star Wars in a box, which is the most cliché thing you could say about it. Phenomenal two-player game. (laughs) That it
1: is. All right, Patrick, we got to wrap this up because we got one more segment to go. Now, with the adventures on the horizon, you got a chance to play Five
0: Paths. What was, what's Five Paths about? It is about Five Paths. Oh, good night, folks. <laughs> Scott, this is a game from Nick Jackson, published by Lomelight Entertainment. This is going to be on Kickstarter March 1st, barring any unforeseen changes in the next two weeks. So fitting for our two-player episode, Five Paths is an abstract strategy game designed for two. You and your opponent, Mm -hmm. you're going to be brawling it out over a cityscape attempting to capture each other. So how do we play? Let's start here. You've got a sprawling board that's meant to be somewhat of an overhead view of a city, depicting all sorts of roads and intersections on which pieces are going to be moving. Now each player is going to get ten units. In the case of the prototype, these were actually really nice painted wooden discs with character stickers Ooh. on them. They looked really sharp. You start the game with five pieces in their starting zone on your side of the city. Now the discs give you two characters from each of five different factions. So I've got Two discs from each of five factions, you have the identical. So you have two character discs from, say, the Gale faction and two from the Ark, etc. This matters because each faction pieces function differently from their movement to how they capture to even a special ability. Let's break down those two that I just mentioned. So if you move a Gale unit, a unit from the Gale faction of which you have two, you're going to roll two dice and you move the sum total. They're D6s in this game. So to capture Mm -hmm. with a Gale unit, you simply need to land and your movement on an enemy unit. Simple. The special ability, though, lets your gale unit basically go off the city street grid so that it's more difficult to capture. Everything has to stay on the streets, but not gale. They can go in between the intersections, and that's emulating the character being perched on a rooftop, sort of hiding out or stalking their prey, right? The arc, on the other hand, we'll use that faction, for example. They roll their two dice. They choose one for move value, and the other one is basically a capture range. So after you're done moving... If you have an enemy unit within your range and line of sight, basically a straight line, you capture it. The special ability of an arc character is based on turning. I should have pointed this out. Normally, you can't have a piece go down a side road or make a turn until it hits a corner. It's got to go straight on that road as long as it can until it hits like a Y or a T intersection. Then and only then can they turn. Well, the arc, they can. They can turn at any time. They don't have to wait until they hit an intersection. So our turn structure in the game is as simple as declaring which unit you're going to have active, roll for its movement and or its range, move the piece, and then capture if possible. Lastly, I said you get 10 pieces to start the game, but only five of them are going to start on the board. So the other five, they're going to be in your reserve. If you captured an opponent's piece, but you still have fewer than they do on the board, you can put one of those reinforcements back onto the board. Winning is as simple Mm. as being the first person to capture five of your opponent's pieces so since
1: it's an adventure on the horizon just to give a quick idea for everyone what are the pros and cons of this game
0: yeah every game has both we'll start with the pros okay Okay. it's an abstract game but i think it does a good job of shaking that description i mean obviously every game's abstract but i think a lot of gamers hear the word abstract and they think okay so it's chess or it's checkers no themes minimal color you know what i mean right right The artwork here, it's mostly limited to just the rulebook and the character discs, but it's quite imaginative. Like one character, he's from a faction called the Kanto. Uh, He's got a feather in his cap and he's playing a trumpet on this little disc. It's actually, it's pretty sweet. To the point though, the pieces and their abilities also, that's thematic to their factions. So while it is technically an abstract game, it does incorporate a little bit of theme here. I also like that it took die rolling and it gave me some agency over how to treat them. Like rolling ones and twos aren't just a bad – like, you know, so many times you have like rolling D6s and it's like, okay, so whoever rolls higher or rolls correctly is going to win the game. This one, no. You have some agency and you can make do with basically any numbers. It's just the mechanism by which you're determining what you're going to do. Plus, you've got a lot of variability based in how you opt to open up. Uh, And what I mean by that is, which five units are you going to start the game with? And on which of your starting locations are you going to put them? Opening moves, they're basically going to be different every time you play, based on what faction pieces you opt to start with on the board. And I know you have five starting spaces Mm -hmm. and only five discs are going down, but I could take both of my arcs, both of my contos, and one of my gales, where somebody else might have two of their pieces from torrent, plus an arc, a conto, and a gale. We're going to have very different asymmetric abilities right from the start of the game. Okay. Now, with all that, what are the cons? I, the first few times I played, like, I had this uh, I had this out at the vault with Jason. And uh, you know what? I had to constantly reference my pieces to see what each of them was capable of. Uh, mm-hmm. To the game's credit, they put reminders right on the board. So it's not that big a hurdle. And I think that by the time a couple gamers are on, like, their fourth or fifth play, you're basically going to know what the faction abilities are by heart. And it's not going to be an issue at all. But those first few plays, there were a lot of turns that began with me looking at where my pieces were, checking their movement rules, their capture rules, their faction abilities. And then, you know, what Mm -hmm. you do is you start counting dots on the board. Okay, how far am I from his piece? What about this one? And then it'd be Jason's turn. He would do the same thing. Okay, I think I want to move this one. Uh, All right, it's going to be this one. I'm declaring this piece. Roll my dice. And then you start counting dots. What if I go this way? What if I go that way? Uh, So there is a little bit of a learning curve as far as the faction abilities and what they do, but also a little bit of a – I don't want to say an analysis paralysis curve, but there is definitely a reward for taking your time and mapping out what you're going to do on your turn, which can slow it down a little bit. I suppose while the rules aren't difficult, the point is that the ease of play has a high curve. It's going to take a few plays before you can just breeze through games. Also thought that the reinforcements as a catch up mechanism was a little bit tough to utilize. Uh, that is, if I capture one of your pieces, Scott, you and I are both playing, uh, you have five right. pieces and I have three. So when I capture one of yours, you'll still have more pieces. So I will get to reinforce. The problem is he's got to spawn back at a starting position. So when my other units are in the thick of things, uh, that guy kind of felt useless out in the, until the dust has settled in the middle of the board. Uh, That said, I am still intrigued by Reinforced because it hasn't turned me off from the game. And I I find myself thinking Mm -hmm. about, okay, should I maybe not put everything into the middle of the board? Because I know I'm going to be reinforcing. And it has me thinking about how I'm going to change my plays going forward. That sounds pretty interesting there. I like that. Now, Now, are you going to back it? Get get right to the point. Uh, I mentioned this (laughs) – (laughs) <laughs> well, I mentioned this game is uh, going to need to see play over and over to be appreciated. And you know me as a gamer, I just I don't do that. It was my problem right. with Cloud Spire. It was, it's my current issue with On Mars. I listed On Mars for sale because I don't think that I'm going to have it back to the table with the same people weekly. You know, We, we, we can't do that. You wanted it, to have a, a nice home to go to basically, and someone that's going to be able to repeatedly play it. And for that matter, when I do play it, I I can see it already. It's going to be with Ryan, and it's going to be on Tabletop Simulator, so the opportunity will still be there. It's not an indictment of the game. (laughs) Five Paths doesn't feel like a game that I'm going to get to the table enough for me personally, but for gamers who do dive deep into games, they want to play it over and over, they want to refine their strategies. Folks that feel like they're just scratching the surface of a game – after their 20th play. Those gamers, I recommend beginning of March, get on Kickstarter and check out Five Paths. I think you're going to like it. A good recommendation. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Well, Scott, it's just about time to wrap up our our Valentine's Day, kind of Valentine's Day, two-player episode. It was just you <laughs> and me today. I'm going to have to play the uh, soundtrack again. Our, not Barry, our Marvin Gaye. <laughs> Scott, tell me, how'd you level up since we last
1: talked? Well, I think the main thing here that I leveled up with is that I was in a play, and now I'm not in a play. Oh. And the reason for that is there were some uh, artistic differences (laughs) between myself and the director. And it was something where normally I would just go through, grit my teeth, do everything. But it was to the point that it was really getting detrimental to me, and it's important – especially now, be careful of taking care of yourself. It's more important that you take care of yourself so you can take those ventures further down the road instead of being absolutely miserable. If you have a chance to be able to take care of yourself and know what is most important for your mental health, do it. It's very, very important. I'm glad I did what I did. I'm not happy that I did it nor I had to do it, but it's very important. Everyone take a moment, take a self-assessment, make sure you're doing what you need to do for you. Very, very important. So your level up is that you're a quitter. Oh, wow. Thanks, Patrick. Now I'm going to go back and like sit in my corner and cry now for an hour. (laughs) I'm sorry. How did you level up? I got the Nikki connection okay uh did you get a shot for that yet or
0: (laughs) uh so nikki's got all the games and she gets all the new games in so we got a chance to play spoiler alert for everyone for upcoming review games so we've been playing some brian Baru, some great wall and that came from nikki she had copies and she just she's like oh yeah you can borrow them all you want they were still in shrink i was like oh that's awesome so like it almost feels like i'm going through the whole experience of getting the game and opening it and punching out the bits, just not the actual spending the money on the game. No, they're still Nikki's. It's got to go back to her. First and foremost, thank you, Nikki, for helping the show out, giving us uh, some relevant new games that we're going to be reviewing in upcoming episodes, but having that connection, uh, just establishing that friendship with someone that, you know, we're already on a, you can borrow my game basis. And ah, that's, yep. that's awfully kind. So that is my level up. Hey, We hope that everyone else finds a
1: way to level up in their lives. And we can't wait to be back with you here again soon with another episode.
0: Those of you in the Pittsburgh area, don't forget March 12th. We at Fabricators Forge from 2 to 8. March 12th. Looking forward to it. Pretty soon, the snow and the cold weather will be out of the way. People will be traveling out,
1: playing some more games. So can't wait to get more games on the horizon. I'll see you next time,
0: Scott. Sounds good, buddy. You take care, Patrick. Thank you so much for joining this adventure of the Level Up Board Game Podcast. We encourage all adventurers to check out our website at levelupgamepodcast.com. There you can submit your thoughts and audio to be used in a future episode. Please consider rating us on iTunes, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and join the Board Game Geek Guild, Guild 3722. Music for the podcast provided by Adam Haynes. Learn more at adamhainesmusic.com. And remember... You can spend another night on the sofa or you can get some friends together, get some adventures on the table, and level up.